are you all this morning? Good, good to see you here. Glad you guys are in worship. Welcome, whether you're here in person or joining us online. So glad that you are here to worship with us at Revolution. All right, so we're continuing this morning in our series, Down to the River, where we're following what is what I set up last week, that river of life. That river of life that we see start in Genesis, flowing from the throne room of God in the Garden of Eden, that life-giving water and how it flows all the way to this sort of uh, vision we have and revelation of the coming kingdom of Christ's return when all will be made well and all will be redeemed of the river of life there flowing from the throne room of God and revelation. And so this river of life kind of snakes and flows all throughout the story of scripture. It becomes a metaphor for us, uh, a metaphor of our story of salvation. Uh, revealing themes along the way of our faith journey, uh, themes of liberation, like we saw last week, themes of new life and faithfulness. And today, we're going to look at the theme of healing and how this river of life has healing powers for our souls, for our bodies, for our very lives. Um, so we're going to stay in the Old Testament here for a couple of more weeks with some of these stories. Sometimes I fear we don't teach from the Old Testament enough because it's kind of, uh, it, it's kind of intimidating, you know, like we, we can get on board with this Jesus guy. That's really fun to teach. <laughs> uh, but sometimes the Old Testament feels even more just farther away, kind of a little bit more removed. It's even more ancient, ancient people, ancient cultures. And, and what does it really mean for our lives today? Yet it's still part of our canon and scriptures are you know, living and breathing and active and, and profitable for teaching us and for guiding our lives. So sometimes we can wrestle with these questions. This story this morning is going to feel like that maybe a little bit, um, but we're going we're gonna to dig in together. Uh, so this is, comes from 2 Kings 5. It's the story of the healing of Naaman in 2 Kings. So I'm going to read that for us, verses 1 through 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him, of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him. Of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of this leprosy, of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. 
So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now this is sort of maybe, um, well here, let me, let me ask this first, because I'm curious. You all remember back a few months ago in the news, did you hear the story uh, that Katy Perry had actually been living in Louisville? For about a month. Did you see that? Yeah. Uh, apparently, uh, so she's engaged to Orlando Bloom, and he was filming a movie out in Henry County, and so she decided to come with their daughter and spend time here while he was shooting. It was sort of kept it under wraps, um, but she went to the zoo. There's like pictures of her getting a tour with a sloth, and I'm a part of this mom's group where some of them run the Glowworm Play Cafe down on Baxter Avenue. Apparently, she had shown up there several times. And this, like, indoor play place with her daughter, and some of the moms were just, like, you know, freaking out. Like, that is Katy Perry in this room about half the size of this. Like, here we are. (laughs) And they were trying to sneak pictures. They asked her if they could get a picture with her. She said no. (laughs) Like, she was trying to sort of fit in and just be a normal person. Um, But in in an interview that she had, uh, when she was asked about her time in Louisville, she said, quote, it's been an amazing experience. And I'm thinking, well, duh, you're in Louisville. That's great. Uh, She goes on, because it reminds you that Hollywood is not America. Well, also, duh, you know, like, yeah, yeah, we, this is, this is, uh, this is America. This is Kentucky. This is definitely not Hollywood. Uh, In a different interview, she said, we're living in sort of a bubble. Our bubbles are completely opposite. It seems she had had sort of this out-of-bubble experience in this month where she was trying to be low-key and just spend time with her family and be here in Louisville outside of California, where she saw maybe how more of the everyday American experience worked. Not the fame and the fortune Still maybe some paparazzi, but not as much, right, as she had experienced in Hollywood. Hollywood is not America. She says, quote, we need to remember that because I think we can understand people better. Our scripture lesson this morning deals with a similar sense of sort of power and influence and how sometimes that impacts our expectations, about how the world works, about how things ought to work, how we see things, and how we live our lives. 
like I said, it's kind of a, a, an interesting, it's an intriguing story. It's a strange story, but it may be one of the two stories you've ever heard in Second Kings, because along with this and like the prophet Elijah, like, you know, being engulfed in, you know, up to heaven, this is the only one of two uh, scripture passages that actually finds itself in the lectionary, which is a three-year schedule that lots of pastor types and preachers use to preach through the Bible in three years. Um, but this is only one of two passages from Second Kings that even makes its way into that rotation. So some, some of you might have heard it before. But again, it's sort of Old Testament. It feels obscure. It feels a little odd. It's ancient. I mean, this is like literally it's part of the, part of the culture that they go on slave raids. And they just go and they steal servants from the neighboring land and and that's how we find ourselves in the presence of this servant girl from Israel that's actually serving the king of Syria and the neighboring enemy territory like we don't have a really great concept of that today right like this this feels kind of far off and so for me sometimes when I'm looking at a passage like this instead of asking what can I learn for me you know what does how does this speak to me how does this impact directly me and in my life I like to have my grounding question sometimes, especially when we approach the Old Testament, is simply to ask, what does this story reveal to us about God? What does this story tell us about God and God's character and God's nature? And if you start there, naturally, what this means for me and how I live my life will follow. But for just a minute, I want you to sort of join me in that question of what does this story tell us about God. Well, first, I think that our God and and the God of Israel is a God of healing, but there's a caveat. God's healing and salvation cannot be bought. That's the first thing that I think we learn in this story. God's salvation, that was me, sorry. God's salvation and healing cannot be bought. Naaman is a very successful commander or the king of Syria. He's a powerful man, a mighty warrior, a man of valor, it says, but he was a leper. Now, this is not the same leprosy that we understand today in terms of skin conditions, but it would have meant that he was ritually unclean and isolated and excluded. And so you can kind of hear the tension maybe in sort of his position and role and power, and yet, like, but a leper. I mean, this actually says, but he was a leper, right? So you can sort of feel the tension, and, and he wants to seek healing from the prophet of Israel, even in this enemy land. But he's a man of power who thinks like a man of power. And so the first thing he does is goes to the king, and the king says, that's great, I'm going to send a letter ahead of you to the king of Israel, saying this is what's going to happen. But he gets confused. It's not the king that can heal him. It's, it's the prophet that can speak this word of blessing over him. And so the king of Israel receives this letter. He rips his clothes in grief and he says, who does he think I am? I am no God. And also another man of power thinks like a man of power. The king of Israel thinks, oh, he's trying to stir something up here. Like this is a trap. This is this is like we've got like a very thin truth that's happening right now. This is a very fragile relationship. And they're coming to me for some sort of favor, coming to my kingdom. And so he says, you know, let's keep an eye on this. Like let's see there there might not be some sort of quarrel here on edge. Naaman brings with him great wealth, right? He controls 
a whole lot of wealth. A thousand pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, I don't know, 10 changes of clothes. I'm not sure why he needs all that for his journey. But he brings all of us a huge treasure. He comes with an entourage with horses and chariots. It's a procession of power into Israel. Because again, he's a, he's a commander. He's, he's a man of power. He's accustomed to bows of honor and unquestioning obedience. He assumes that what he wants and needs, he will get. This is how his world works. So you can imagine that feeling, or you can maybe imagine this situation when he, when he goes and Elisha doesn't even come out to greet him. The prophet doesn't even leave his house. He just sends a messenger out to him to say, hey, just do this, wash seven times in the river, in the Jordan. Naaman is like slighted. Right, like he's like, this is not how this is supposed to go. This is not what I expected. I wanted pomp. I wanted circumstance. I wanted you to wave your hands. I wanted you to have some mighty prayer over me. Do you know who I am? He just sends a messenger out. And in his rage, in his anger, in his feeling slighted, Naaman wants to leave. <laughs> He's like, forget this. Don't you think our rivers back home are just as good as this Jordan? (laughs) Maybe even cleaner. I came across this quote by a biblical scholar, Rolf Jacobson, who says this. The world thinks these things matter to God and salvation. War horses, chariots, generals, kings, letters of introduction from the influential. Wealth, complicated religious rituals, cleaner and better rivers and waters. And those who are successful according to the ways of the world think such things matter to and will influence God, but they do not. God is not moved to act by complicated rituals, by golden bribes, by the influence of the powerful, by the power of the military, or the quality of the water and the wine. God is moved to act because God is God, and God will save whom God chooses to save. In our world today, when money can pretty much buy you anything, anything that you would like, influence, if you have it, money can buy you influence and comfort and power, prestige. And in many cases in our system today, money can buy you healing and access to the best health care has to offer us. It's important to remember then for us, I think, what does this tell us about who God is and and how God works is that God's healing and God's salvation cannot be bought. That's the first thing. The second is, is to see where God is at work. And I find this story really fascinating and exciting because God doesn't seem to really be at work with the commanders and the kings. Right? Like, it's there, you know, but they're not the ones that are performing these acts of healing. You know, God's at work in the prophets and the servants and the unnamed people of this story. Starting with the servant from Israel, the servant girl who is unnamed, who has the boldness and the faith to say to her, the woman that she serves, hey, you know, there's a prophet in Israel that I think could help your husband. It's the unnamed servant who has the 
the courage to share her faith in this moment that connects Naaman to the prophet. The servants of Naaman then also, it's, the, it's his servants who then convince him to stay. When he's ready to leave, when he wants to say, forget this and go home and miss his chance for healing, it's the servants that then convince him to stay. It's these unnamed people on the bottom of society that become agents of God's work and of God's healing in this moment. It reminds us then that God's God works through unexpected people in unexpected places in unexpected ways, and it oft, often feels sort of upside down to the way the world works or the way the world thinks that it works. It's not in the big rituals. It's not in the big procession. It's not in the, not in the big celebration. It's not in the big-name people. It's in the unexpected places and through the unexpected people. The scholar goes on. It's a similar quote. Only the lowly and the godly can see how God works. The young enslaved girl can see. The general's slaves can see. The prophet can see. In other texts, later on, we'll see it's the widow, the orphan, the sojourner who can see. The crucified one, above all, knows and embodies the way God works upside down nature kingdom of heaven doesn't make sense to the world that we live in it's still to the ancient world but this is our God who works through unexpected people in unexpected places the last lesson I think is this even Naaman can be healed last thing that we learn about God I think not the last but one the last thing I'm going to share this morning that we learn from this passage about who God is and how God works is that even Naaman, a commander of an enemy kingdom, even Naaman can be healed. He's an enemy of Israel. He's a Gentile. He's an outsider. Maybe for us foreshadowing sort of what is to come, that Israel is going to be a blessing and that blessing will be for all nations and for all people. As we just read, it's the crucified one who knows and embodies the way God works. It'll be Jesus who brings this blessing for all people. You know, Jesus actually references this story in his own teaching. That may also be a reason you might have heard the story of Naaman before. It's in his first public teaching in the Gospel of Luke when he stands in his hometown synagogue. He stands in his home church and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and he says, this has been fulfilled. This reading has been fulfilled in your hearing. I love this passage of scripture in Luke, so I'm honestly a little embarrassed to admit to you that I did not realize or remember that Naaman pops up in Luke 4. I thought, what? No, not Luke 4. I love Luke 4, but there's no shame here. So I'm going to share that with you this morning. Because I like the first part when it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news and to... to uh, Proclaim liberty to the captives, good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. <laughs> yes, I love that part. Turns out over the years, I've forgotten the rest of it. So it's a really, and maybe another just like side lesson of this is why we read like the whole passage and, and the whole story and we don't just pick out ones that we like. 
So I'm going to share more. (laughs) Jesus, he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and the eyes and all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he says this, truly, I say to you, this is a few verses before, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. A great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And here this picks up. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Oh, that's a different one. That's the end of it. He went away. I know that. I know the end of it. Like, I know the beginning. I know the end. I know that they tried to kill Jesus because of what he said, but I forgot all that he said. When he uses Naaman as an example for the expansive scope of God's love and healing and salvation, of what this means, of even people like Naaman, Gentiles, outsiders, all people now, powerful people now too, they were so outraged by this that they tried to kill him. They tried to kill him. And later, of course, we know that Jesus... He will heal the slave of a Roman centurion. He will heal an officer of another oppressing power. He'll, it'll be a centurion that praises God and proclaims the innocence of Jesus at the cross. This is the God, and now we understand the Jesus that we serve, whose salvation and healing cannot be bought, who often works through unexpected people and unexpected places and upside down ways to how our world and sometimes we think our faith works and also ones that are even willing to love and save our enemies even our namens and so I think just in summary the thing that I I I really think this reveals to us the whole time that I was reading this and preparing this um, a passage from Isaiah 55 kept coming to my mind And it's that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. Not the world's ways. Isaiah 55 says this. That's kind of little. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord for he will have mercy on them. And to our God for he will freely pardon. This is the part I had stuck in my head. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's a really beautiful prayer sequence that that folks in the Episcopal Church will sing in morning prayer and chant. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so where does that leave us? What do we do? I I think the instruction is to seek the Lord where he wills to be found. Seek the Lord where he wills to be found. Seek the Lord where he wills to be found and at work on the outskirts with the unnamed people 
with the forgotten folks, with the servants, with those who've humbled themselves. Seek the Lord where he wills to be found, where Jesus says he didn't count, uh, you know, glory with God as something to, to be, uh, to, to boast about, but humbled himself, right? Thought of the cares of others and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Seek the Lord where he wills to be found in Christ Jesus, who is for us the source now of our greatest healing, of our greatest healing. You know, there's another part of this that I, um, that I thought stood out to me is that Naaman, Naaman was, was pretty desperate. Naaman was pretty desperate for healing uh, in this story. So desperate, in fact, uh, that he's willing, you know, to take all that he has, thinking that that's, that's what was expected. But risking all that he has going into the enemy land to find a sense of healing. And it's true that there are times in our lives when we feel that desperate for healing. Whether for ourselves or for a loved one, that desperate for a change and that desperate for relief. Seek the Lord where he wills to be found at the river in in healing and in ways that we don't always expect, yes, but in remembering that our ultimate healing is found in Jesus Christ. God is not moved to act by shows of power and influence and wealth, even in our understandings of sort of like devotions and, and deservingness, this meritocracy of even sometimes how our faith works, right? Like I've, I've prayed and I've believed and I've been here and, and I deserve healing, why is that not happening? I, I think, too, we can resonate, even, even if I've painted Naaman as kind of this powerful enemy guy. I think we can really resonate with Naaman in his place of desperation. Because we've all been that desperate. And how, do, how, how many times do we wish that we could just simply go see someone who's going to tell us a very simple instruction of bathing in a river and we'll be, we'll be healed? I know I've shared this story with you all before, but it's something that always uh, I hold close to my heart. Uh, and it's the story of our dear friend, uh, Tom, that we knew from Camp Lucon. Matt lived with him in college, who passed away about five or six years ago now uh, from colon cancer. Barely even 30 years old, and he had stage four colon cancer, lived about a year, and, and he died. And Matt, you know, will, will tell me that, you know, it was like he was at his wedding and then five years later, he was in the same church for his funeral. And it left us in kind of one of those places where we're like, why? You know, why Tom, who was just probably one of the best people that you could have just ever meet in your whole entire life? He had a way of making every person just feel like the center of his world. If you were talking with him, if you were working with kids with him at camp, I mean, he was just all fun, all joy, all goofy. It seemed like all of the time. He loved Jesus so big. <laughs> he, it, was just, it, it was just contagious that he taught these other kids how to love Jesus that big too and just how to be themselves and have fun in this life. And I remember being at his funeral and hearing his wife speak, which is like something you don't hear very often. 
And his wife stood up there and, and she said, all of our prayers for healing have been answered. And I'm like, I'm like in seminary at the time going like, okay, what? <laughs> you know, all of our prayers for healing have been answered. She said, because there's such a healing as heaven. There is such a healing as him now being at peace in the presence of Christ with no more cancer that's wrecking his body. And I thought the faith of this young woman who got married just the year before I did, to have the faith and assurance to know that Tom had experienced his wholeness and his healing in the kingdom of God and the presence of Christ because of Jesus Christ. This story is strange. It's weird. It makes us think that healing can come easy. It makes us think that, yes, it's in unexpected ways and and for unexpected people, but that it, it happens, and it can happen on demand if we want it to. But we know that doesn't always happen. That's not always how it works. That's often our expectations. If anything, what I'm left with, this story reminds us that God is God and we are not. And so we seek the Lord where he wills to be found. And we walk and stand in faith, knowing that our full healing in Jesus Christ is coming. Whether we see it now or we see it in glory, it's coming. That kingdom where there will be no more violence and chaos and death and destruction. That passage from Isaiah and I'm going to end with this and, and close in a prayer. The, this, this passage in Isaiah starts with this. And it's, it's kind of that sort of invitation for that hope-filled kingdom that's coming. It's this invitation. And it says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Sort of the celebratory, like time for feasting. Won't you come? Even if you can't afford it, all who are welcome, come. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the water and you will find healing in the presence and in the name and in the grace of Jesus Christ. So seek the Lord where he wills to be found. That's the next verse. Call upon him as he draws near. Let us forsake our ways. Let us repent. Let us turn. And even if healing comes in ways that we don't always expect or need or want in the moment, may we have faith and stand firm in the knowledge that our healing in Christ is coming and is promised to us if we just have eyes to see the kingdom that's coming. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are and for how you are at work in our world. Even if we don't always see it, even if we don't always know it, even if we don't know how to always look for it or expect it. God, we thank you that you are a God who desires to come near to us, so much so that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be with us, to be one of us, to redeem us, 
so that those who thirst never have to be thirsty again. God, even in this sort of difficult teaching about healing and, and how it works, God, help us to carry uh, these, these lessons with us. Help us to learn just a little bit more about you today and how your extravagant and inclusive love works, that it's even the namens of the world, that this healing and salvation is available to them. Help us to remember that we don't that we can't earn this, that there's nothing we can do to buy this kind of grace or healing or salvation. Only surrender into you and your love into your divine plan for this earth. God, help us just to find a little bit of peace in that space of faith this morning. As we rest in your presence, as we rest in your love, and as we come to the water of your healing. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.